Are you concerned with the direction of the public education system? Are you wondering what you can do to preserve your child's heart and mind? Have you thought about homeschooling but have fears about whether it would work for you? Join us for our Home Education Conference on Saturday, August 13th, hosted by Victory Bible Church in Hamilton. Find answers to the questions, should you, would you, could you? Speak with those who have, with those who are, and with those who were home educated. Hear their success stories, identify challenges, and learn how to overcome them. Investigate for yourself what an education from a biblical worldview looks like. The Home Education Conference will be held at Victory Bible Church in Hamilton, New Jersey on Saturday, August 13th. Doors open at 7.30 a.m. and the conference will end around 4 p.m. The cost is only $10 per person or $20 per family. Table registrations are available for those wanting to sell used curriculum and or cottage business. For more information, visit vbchamilton.org. That's vbchamilton.org. Welcome to Thoroughly Equipped, a podcast for women where we compare the popular women's ministry teachings, books, conferences, Bible studies, etc. to scripture. Our focus is 2 Timothy 3, 16-17, that all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so the man or woman of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. I am your host, Melba Toast. May this episode bless you and bring glory to God. Hello, ladies. Welcome back to another episode of Thoroughly Equipped. I thank you for joining me and am actually impressed if you have stuck with me on this journey through the F Gathering Conference. I honestly am questioning my own sanity right now, and we haven't even gotten into some of the real issues with this ministry in this part of the series. But if you are new, welcome. And for those of you who are new, I'll just lay a little background into this season of Thoroughly Equipped and how we got here. Back in February, I had planned to go through Rachel Hollis's book, Girl Stop Apologizing, when I got the promo clip for the 2022 If Gathering Conference. Last season, I had done a critique on Jenny Allen, um, the founder and visionary of the If Parachurch Women's Ministry. Uh, We did a critique on her book, Getting Out of Her Head, a study in Philippians. I had a big issue with how she brought in positive psychology, uh, psychological tools such as cognitive behavior techniques, mind mapping, um, using awe to diminish the self, and implementing so-called weapons such as silence, intentionality, connection, humility, etc. as tools to sanctify our thought spirals. Now, it bothered me greatly that she, one, imposed her psychological ideas within the text of Philippians, and two, that she undermined the authority and sufficiency of Scripture to sanctify God's women and their thoughts by incorporating these techniques into her book and encouraging the women reading it to implement them. So with that in mind, I decided to check out the IF conference. Finding out I had access to watch the last couple of years' conferences, I then dived straight in. And boy, was I troubled by what I saw and heard. I decided that it was time to tackle this deeply and thoroughly, and that is what I am doing. At this point, I have watched 40 hours of conference sessions. That's three years of conferences, 2020, 
2021 and 2022. And just because I'm a Glutton for punishment. I am now watching some of 2017, 2018, 2019, and 2020's if lead conferences as well. Now there's a lot we will be discussing in the coming episodes of To E. But to lay out the way I am attacking this critique, I have split it into portions or parts if you want to call it that. The first part was addressing the purpose of the IF ministry itself. The second part, I addressed the speakers that are popular and repeatedly teach at this conference. I also gave a short synopsis of these women's ministries and looked at their titles at the churches that they minister to. I wanted to present a litmus test for you to be able to see just how authoritative they believe scripture is. Determining if they submit to the clear directives given to women in scripture on their roles in ministry is a clear way by which we can judge whether we should come up under their teaching, for they make disciples either after themselves or Christ. That is going to be the effect of their work. It was clear for most of these women's ministries that they have no qualms about undermining the instructions given to women by God that they are to not teach or hold authority over men in the church congregation. And for most of these women, they call themselves pastors and preach over men and women in local congregations. We are currently in part three looking at how these popular female speakers who call themselves prominent leaders within the typical evangelical women's ministry, we're looking at how they handle scripture. And the If Gathering 2020 conference was a great way to assess this, as Jenny Allen had each speaker give a message on a portion of Romans 8. She rightfully describes this chapter in Romans as one of the most theologically rich chapters in all of scripture. So, if this is the case, we should be learning a lot about God, Christ, and the Holy Spirit. But I have to say, the theology has been very lacking. We have heard a lot about what we should and shouldn't be doing, such as acknowledging that God satisfied our greatest needs so we can live our lives with no condemnation, never actually going into how God satisfied our greatest need, We've heard how we need to take control of our negative thoughts, that we need to cherish what is in us so that we can live supernatural lives, that we are not to be slaves to our fears, but are to open up our inheritance to accomplish our callings, uh, to not count our resources and trust in Christ even when we feel lost in our callings, and that we are to be on guard for what God wants to do in our lives and know that we are more than conquerors in this life. Today's message is given by Ann Voskamp on Romans 8.32. So before we dive into her session, let's look at the verse in context. And we're going to go way back to the end of Romans 7 and the beginning of Romans 8 to really get the context of this verse. Paul has just explained how no man is righteous before God, that all have sinned and are destined for God's wrath. And then he looks inward at his own life, seeing the war that rages between his flesh and his spirit, and acknowledges that he does not have the ability within his flesh to obey the law of God like he desires to. After identifying the sin that is within him, he states this. 
Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord, so that I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. There is, therefore, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do, by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it, doesn't sub- for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself would be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. 
Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose— for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Now here is verse, uh, the verse that Voskamp is to teach on. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, For your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angel, angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, the reason I wanted to go back that far into the text was because Paul in this verse is pointing back to what God did through the giving of his son and how Christ gave his life for us and all the things that come with Christ. Those details were given through the whole chapter. First, we see that we are set free from condemnation because God gave us his son who willingly came to live a perfect life of obedience to the Father, and in that same obedience went to the cross to become sin for us. And he is raised for our justification, conquering sin, death, and the devil. And we who are in Christ are conquerors over sin, death, and the devil as well. For those whom God foreknew, he predestined to be conformed into the image of his Son. God predestined his people, he calls his people, he justifies his people, and he glorifies his people. God, by the Holy Spirit, indwells in his people to put to death the deeds of the body, to suffer with them in this sin-infested world, to pray and intercede for them when they are weak, and will one day raise them up with new bodies, glorified and without sin. God really does give us all things— all things needed to reconcile us to God. All things needed to thoroughly equip us for every good work. All things needed to overcome sin. All things needed to fight this evil age. And all things needed to bring us into the next age, into eternity. 
Now let's look specifically at the verse that Ann Voskamp is to teach on, Romans 8.32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? This is a wonderful verse. There is so much Miss Voskamp can dive into from this verse. First, she could talk about how God did not spare his own son. She could talk about the sending of his son, the plan from eternity past to give his son, First Peter one twenty. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony that was given at the right time, First Timothy 2.6. She could talk about God's giving of the Son, why Christ was given, and what for, that he had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteem him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He had put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities." Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death, and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many, and makes intercession for the transgressors. Isaiah 53, 2-12 She can go into this, and from it show us since God the Father sent forth his Son to pour out his wrath upon him, and the Son willingly went to the cross to pay for our iniquities, there is nothing God will not do to keep his people. He will give them all things to equip, guide, instruct, strengthen, etc., to keep them and bring them to glory, to bring them to himself. Nothing can keep us from the love of Christ. All these things could be brought to our attention by Anne Voskamp. So, is this what she will present to us?
Let's dive into her message and find out. Miss Voskamp starts her message sorrowfully stating how one of her children confessed to not wanting to follow Jesus anymore. She explains that there is no greater joy than to, quote, see your people walk with Jesus and no greater anguish than to see your people walk away from Jesus and wonder if it's because of the way you are walking, end quote. She proclaims that at any point, there may be times when we are desperate for someone to hand us a compass to show us the way through because we don't know how to change who we are. And then she talks about her own struggles in the past. Let's listen in because this is her setup for her message. I'm telling you, you can be halfway through your life or at about any point in your life, and you can be desperate for someone to hand you a compass and show you the way through because you don't know how to change the way that you are. I've scarred people irrevocably. I've fought self-harming daily. And I've about died by self-loathing repeatedly. And I am the prodigal in the far-off distant land, begging God to make a way. But the truth is, too often we say, God will make a way, and we want him to make our way, my way, the way that I want. Augustine of Hippo coined the term in Latin, and I'm going to butcher it because I'm a farm girl who taught her kids Latin. But anyways, <laughs> incorritus inse, it means we're inward turned, curved towards ourselves. And that's what I've had, incurvitus. My road has been turned and curved towards the marriage I wanted, the kids that I wanted, the story and the way that I wanted. And when your road is turned towards you, you never arrive where you want. Turn inward and you will end up wayward. Okay, she's right here that this is what our sinful nature does. This is the curse. We who were born from Adam, this is what we deal with. Always looking inward, always loving ourselves, naturally born to desire our own will and not God's. This is not just her sin, but the sin nature that we all have. And is she going to state this? Is she going to call out how the believers are to wrestle with this sin and how the unbelievers are to repent of this sin? Let's keep listening. Turn inward and nothing turns out the way you hoped. I'm the pig farmer's daughter who found herself in a far off distant place in her head in very real mire and muck, slopping more than a few metaphorical hogs, maybe a few real ones. The wayward girl who thought she could somehow work her way out of the pit who thought she could pay a pound of flesh for the tons of things she got wrong, who thought she could grab a compass and head back to her Abba Father and tell him maybe what you've told him. I'll hustle and you help. Hustle can make you the hero in the story and make God a footnote in the story. We are made to bend the knee and anoint his feet and give him all the glory. Amen. All right, so the first thing she states there is that when we turn inward, then nothing turns out the way we hope. Well, basically, she's stating that the problem of this sinful nature is that it keeps things from turning out the way we hope. Not that it's an affront to a holy God. Not that the result of this sin nature to turn inward is death and eternal torment in hell. But it is merely a disruption of our hopes. 
But what if our hopes were turned inward too? What if the things we hope for are selfish and self-centered for our comfort and done in love of our sinful desires? Now she relays how we in our sinful nature have a tendency to turn to the law to save us as she says, quote, I'll hustle if you, that being God, help. And it does tend to make one a hero in their story, thinking that one is made right with God by obeying the law if this is what she means by hustle, will either bring one into despair if they understand the law rightly or pride because they actually think they keep it like the rich young ruler proclaimed in Matthew nineteen sixteen to 22. But is the hustle that she's talking about here in regards to obedience to the law or is it hustling for something else? Hustling to accomplish our hopes, perhaps. You know, sometimes it's like, it's like someone who likes the status of their job, but doesn't like the company of their boss. We can enjoy the glory of working for God, but not enjoy getting away alone with God. You may want to do more for God, learn for God, hustle for God, but no matter what sexy any self-help guru is selling, The widely radical truth is, dead people can't find their way. Lost sheep never find their way back to the fold. Lost coin never finds its way back to the purse. Lost and wayward can only find the way when we accept being found by the one who is the way. And when I came, when I came to the end of myself, found out that all of my roads were dead ends. And I thought about death by self. I began fasting and praying and begging God for a sign that he sees the loss and the one who doesn't see the way through. Somehow, God, make a way for the prodigals. Make a way for the impossibles. Okay. Some of you may be scratching your heads here because, you know, I know I was. (laughs) And it took me a bit to figure out what she was talking about. She's very flowery with her words, um, using parables as metaphors and, and phrases that are uh, quite confusing in meaning. But one of the problems here is that she seems to equate being a lost sheep with being disciples of Christ, whose hopes don't turn out as they plan. The parable of the prodigal son is related to the parable of the lost sheep and the lost coin. They were told in response to the grumbling of the Pharisees, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. They're talking about Christ, Luke 15.2. These stories were told to reveal how the Messiah was sent not to call the righteous, but to call the sinners to repentance, Mark 2.17 and Luke 5.31. The prodigal son parable is about the repentance of the sins this dishonoring son committed and the mercy and forgiveness granted by the father. It's not about how God makes, quote, a way for the prodigals, makes a way for the impossibles. The goal is very vague. Make a way for what? Make a way for salvation? Make a way to be made right with God? Make a way to end the curse of sin? What is Miss Voskamp's end goal? Is it these things, or is it the goal of our hopes and dreams coming to pass? And what does this have to do with our walk? or the faith of those who observe our walk as stated in the beginning of her message. 
She continues on talking about how in this time of despair she found, found herself lost driving a rental car in the middle of Tennessee on the way to a women's conference where she claims her phone miraculously connects to this rental car's Bluetooth and plays a download she was trying to get. It plays John 14, where Thomas asks Jesus, how can we know the way? On this ride, she states that she was praying and begging God to show her the way. And my prayer isn't even finished when I come around to bend on this lost road in Tennessee and see a sign that says, Jesus is the way maker. And at the same instant, full blast through the speakers of the car, there's a voice that says, Jesus answered, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Come on. I've been fasting without food for days. I'm thousands of miles away from home. I'm lost on a road in Tennessee, begging for a sign that he's the way. And there it is, an actual sign. With the speakers blaring out his words saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Now, I'm not going to exegete her experience. Neither will I question that it even happened. But I do wonder why this experience is what brought her hope. Why did God's word not bring her the hope and comfort that she sought, but this experience did? I do find comfort, and my faith does grow in providential experiences. When we understand that God is at work in providence, it solidifies our faith that God is sovereign and does all that he pleases. But why use her experience to encourage the women in this audience who are lost, who are like the prodigal son and lost sheep, why talk about her experience and not talk about God's word? And especially not talk about the way that Christ reconciled his lost sheep to himself. Listen to where she goes here. You know, I don't know what impossible you're begging God for right now. But Jesus sent me to give you a sign. You have a way maker. You have a way maker will not just make our way a maybe way or a, possi a possible way. You have a way maker who will make the way because Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And the moment I saw that sign, I pulled over to the side of the road and I bawled like a baby because I could feel it. Maybe you can feel it too. Your father kissing you with grace in all your wounded places. Your way maker who is a father who's always out on the porch, neck craning, looking down the road for his wayward prodigals. The prodigal father, lavish and wasteful in his love. Okay, there's a lot going on here. Let's tackle this one at a time. Let's look at her statement here. What impossible are you begging God for right now? Now, this statement is left open to way too much personal interpretation. One woman can interpret her impossible to be some worldly thing, a job, her weight, her family issues, uh, some type of political issue she wants to see fixed. I mean, this could be all sorts of things to women. The issue, though, is what did Thomas mean by the way? And what does Jesus mean by the way? The way to what? 
Let's look at this passage in John 14. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. For now on, you do know him and have seen him. That was John 14, verses 1 to 7. So when Thomas is asking to know the way, he's asking to know the way to where Jesus is going. And Jesus says here that he's going to the Father. So Thomas is asking for Jesus to show them the way to the Father, not just a way to or through the impossible that we are begging God for. And this is why her message is going to only get more and more confusing, because she will continue to say Jesus is the way, but make the goal or the endpoint of that way the impossible that we are begging Jesus for. The endpoint of the way is subjective and determined by the individual, when the way that Jesus is talking about in Scripture is himself, and the destination is the Father. Now, here's another thing about what she said in the last part of this clip. Is God's love lavish and wasteful? Lavish means sumptuously rich, elaborate, or luxurious. This I would agree with, but wasteful? No. Wasteful means using or expending something of value carelessly, extravagantly, or to no purpose. Everything God does is to accomplish his purposes. There is a reason and there is a goal and all is for his glory, even the works he does in his love. Isaiah 46, 8-11 I am not fond of the sensual description of God's love. Now from here she gets even more flowery in her words describing the father in the parable as defying the patriarchy at the time by running to the prodigal and in doing so casting shame upon himself. She describes herself as the prodigal coming back to the game plan to work it all out. I've been that prodigal coming back to the Father with my game plan to work it all out, to work my way out of the pit, to work for more good, work better, work faster, work harder. And the Waymaker had a plan to stretch himself out on the cross, complete all the work, and take the wayward in his arms. You may struggle with self-loathing and self-turning and self-focus, but you have a way-making God who runs after you like a mother not to rain down wrath on you, but to shower you with kisses. The wayward think they have to find a way or make a way, but you don't have to make a way. You don't have to find a way. You only have to accept that it's the way maker who finds you and he makes the way. Okay, digging through all the flowery, poetic, sensual speech, and it's really hard to know what she is talking about. She keeps talking about the way, but the way to what? It's not clear. 
Using flowery speech may sound good and tickle our ears, but it has no meaning if she's not defining her terms here. For some, the way could mean that the father makes a way through our troubles and pains. And that sounds a lot like what she's trying to say here. And I would agree with her, in a way, if that is what she means. But what is the connection in what she is teaching to what Paul is teaching in Romans 8.32? Is the way she talks about here the way to the father? She mentions the way maker as having a plan to stretch out his hands on the cross, complete all the work, and come after you like a mother who will shower you with kisses. Now, there is strange new talk coming into the church that we need to be on guard and looking out for. I'm not saying she's speaking in this way, but it's a very fine line to walk here. There is this talk about exposing the church to a feminine expression of God, and this is what Miss Voss Camp has done here, either in ignorance or on purpose. This new talk wants to press on the point that God is neither male nor female and pose a sort of gender fluidity within the text, meaning they take license with it to change the metaphors God uses for himself as father and change it to mother in hopes to bring in a more egalitarian view of the Trinity and his word. Anne Voskamp has right here changed the gender description of the father in the parable to being, quote, like a mother running to her prodigals to lavish them with kisses. This is a problem. Though God is spirit and has not a body like humans, Jesus does. Jesus took on flesh, human flesh, and more specifically, he took on male flesh. Jesus describes God as a father, as one with all authority, and the patriarch, the head of all creation. It's no neglect on God's part to use male pronouns when he talks about himself in his revelation of himself. Each person in the Trinity is described with male pronouns when referring to himself. There are occasions in scripture where female pronouns are used to describe wisdom or are used to give metaphors to expound about a trait, action, or a way God behaves, but it is not in reference to his person. If you start hearing teachers talk about God as mother, run. These are sparks of a egalitarian teaching called the divine feminine and are rooted in new age and pagan spiritism. While Miss Voskamp has not outrightly changed the parable by using the words like a mother to describe the way God comes to us, why did she even change it at all? Why not continue with the parable and describe God as Jesus gives us in his story, a father who runs to us to restore the prodigal to the family? Why change the gender? This causes me to be very suspicious. She continues by saying that this is what repentance is, accepting that we are accepted and found. That's what repentance, that's what soul growth, that's what finding the way looks like every single day. Accept that you are accepted and found. Why is that so hard to accept being accepted and found as his beloved, found in the Waymaker's arms? Our greatest act is the act of surrender. Your life 
is as great as you greatly surrender to a great God. Much suffering ends where surrendering begins. The wayward turn inward. Turn and accept being found is the only way to be a wayfinder. Turn and fall madly in love with the waymaker who turns everything around. More twisting and turning and waymaker, wayfinder, confusion. But is this true? Is this what the scriptures mean by repentance? Or is it how we find our way? Do we find the waymaker by surrendering and accepting that we are accepted? Nope. And this is a huge problem. This is an entirely different gospel. Anne Voskamp is saying that we are accepted by God when we surrender and accept being accepted by Him. First, there is a problem that there's this underlying assumption that God merely accepts people and that their problem is not their sin and lack of faith in Christ, but that they just don't know that God accept th accepts them. Over and over again, Scripture describes God as being angry at sinners, that His wrath will one day be poured out on all who transgress His law. Romans 1.18, Romans 2.5 More specifically, God's wrath will be poured out on those who do not believe in His Son. John 3.36 Those who do not accept Jesus as the Son of God and His death and resurrection. God in his love and justice cannot merely accept a sinner. Justice must be given, and that is where repentance comes in. Repentance is acknowledging that God, by his righteous law, has told us what righteousness looks like. By this holy law, we are exposed to our sin. Romans 3.20 and 7.7 7. And rightly, Understand that those who do not keep the law will be held accountable on the day of judgment. Romans 2, 1-29, James 2, 10, Galatians 3, 10. Repentance is confessing our sins, acknowledging that we are deserving of God's righteous wrath, and in this knowledge, crying out for mercy. If we confess our sins... He is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 1 John 1, nine. Jesus did not call people to accept that they are accepted. He came to call sinners to repentance. Luke 5.32 Jesus is the way to God. He is the way because for those who repent of their sin and trust in Christ's work, their sins are placed on him, and he bore the wrath of God. For our sake he made Christ to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians 5.21 Our greatest act is not the act of surrender. Our greatest act is faith. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Hebrews 11.6 God rewards those who seek him. It doesn't say that God rewards those who accept being accepted by him. No, but those who long for him because he is the goal. 
Those who merely want to be accepted by him without acknowledging their rebellion against him don't actually want holiness and righteousness. Don't actually want God because holiness and righteousness are his nature. And isn't that where Miss Voskamp is going with this? Describing being wayward, prodigal, sinful, and yet telling her audience that God accepts you and wants to lavish you with love and kisses like a mother? You just merely need to accept his love? She transitions to telling the audience that she has a compass that she keeps with her at her desk. On it, it is engraved, Be strong and courageous, for the Lord is with you. And this word is for those listening. Even if things have not gone the way they've hoped, whether they have gone wayward or not, the Lord is with them. And the wayfinder rests in the love of the waymaker. She states that on the other side of the compass, the word God is where north would be and tells the audience that God is our true north, that any other magnetic force placed near the compass will hinder it from pointing true north. In the same way, when we are distracted or putting hope in other things, our spirit or compass will not point the way. If the compass of your soul is too close to the noise, to the draw of busyness, to the magnetic pull of comparison and competition, you won't find the way because your soul isn't drawn to the way maker the most. If you are turned toward the gram more than towards God, toward a hustling spirit more than the Holy Spirit, to arriving at some good place, then more than you are willing to live in a good God, your compass will not take you where you want to end up. If you want God to make a way, give him all of your ways. Because there is one way, one way and only one way that Jesus will not make. The way maker who died for us, who was raised to life for us is in the presence of God at this very moment, sticking up for us. Do you think anyone is going to be able to drive a wedge between us and Christ's love for us? There is no way, amen. There is no way for anything to get between you and your way maker. There is no way the Waymaker will let the thing that went down that makes you want to throw up get in the way. Not the skeleton in your closet that makes you feel shame in the bones. Not the 1% that you want 100% of people never to know about. Not the doubts or the questions that no one knows that you ask. Not the prodigal in your heart and not the prodigal in your life. There is no way that any of that can get in the way of you being in his arms, fully known and fully claimed fully safe. Did you notice what she did there? She gave a warning that if we are letting certain things pull us like comparison and competition, then the compass of our souls will not help us find the way. She then turns around and says that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Well, except being pulled or guided by things such as comparison and competition, right? Or any other thing that would draw our heart away from true north. So, which is it? Does comparison and competition keep us from finding the way, or does nothing separate us from the love of Christ? I tell you, she's so very confusing, these words that she's using, and so I don't know if she's misspoke or is twisting around words, but she says 
There is, quote, one way and only one way that God will not make, and then proceeds to talk about how nothing can separate us from God because Jesus is sticking up for us. There is, quote, no way that even that thing that went down that makes you want to throw up will not get in the way. And my brain is doing flip-flops, and I'm not sure if that is her intention or not, but it's so very confusing. Now, it's at this point that she quotes Romans 8.32. You know what proves this beyond a shadow of a doubt? He, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not graciously give us all things? Romans 8.32. If he gave you, Jesus, your greatest need, can you doubt that he will give you everything that you need? He gave you Jesus, who is the way, who is the road. And he provides everything that you need for the way, for your road. The fuel, the strength, the sustenance, the directions, the skills, the wheels. So Jesus, take the wheel. Take all of me, all of us. The way maker who guides will provide. Yep, that's true. And that's the end of the message. She restates, quote, the wayward turn inward, the way finders turn and accept being found, and the way maker turns everything around, end quote. And then asks the audience to stand, hold the compass of their soul, and let the way maker hold them as they pray, completely surrendered to him. The entire message talking about being wayward, about compasses, true north, and God as waymaker, and at the end we get about 45 seconds actually talking about the text. A lot of talk about God making a way, but never actually describing the way he made. My brain has done gymnastics to really grasp what she is trying to teach, and it's because she talks in these metaphors and rhymes using metaphors to describe God and Christ as true north and waymakers, describing us as wayward, prodigals, wayfinders, and souls as compasses. These may make someone sound so enlightened, yet what sense or understanding does it bring? What meaning and what knowledge have we gained from this message? Just accept being accepted by the waymaker who has given us all things? Is that what Paul is trying to communicate to Christ's disciples as well? No, it's not. Paul is writing to the Christian church, people who are sinners, who've confessed that they are sinners and are hungering for righteousness, groaning inwardly for a sinless world, sinless bodies, and a great desire to be with the holy and righteous God. The quote-unquote way that they are looking for is righteousness, because they know that that is the way to God, and God is their goal. Christ is the way maker, if you wish to use this type of terminology. He is the way, the truth, and the life, John 14, 6. Because our sin was cast upon him, we, by faith, are clothed with his righteousness, making our way to God through it, through Christ's righteousness. 
And Paul is saying that because God foreknew us, he predestined that we be conformed to the image of Christ. God did not spare his own son to accomplish all we need to be made right with him. The ultimate price was paid, and therefore there is nothing else that can keep us from that which God has predestined for us, the being conformed to Christ's image. For in the end, we will be glorified and like our master. The gospel is at the center of this verse. When we worry that something, anything, has kept or will keep us from the love of God, the gospel shouts that nothing will separate us. Oh, the understanding that comes from that one statement, that God did not spare his son, the greatest act of love displayed on the part of both the father and the son. How then can we be anxious or fearful that anything will come between us and God? So much she could have said, so much she could have shown us in just that small statement in just this one verse. And that's what I pray for, ladies, that you see the great love that God has for his people. That he did not spare his son, but gave him up for us all, and God will also give us all things. He will accomplish all his holy will. I pray that in this knowledge, your love will abound more and more. For this knowledge that God gave us, his son, for us, drives us to give back to him. It is faith in this that we love God and love neighbor, love our husbands and our children. For what can we not give that God has not already given to us? By his son, we have eternal life. I pray you rest in it. I pray you are in his word. Ladies, if you are interested in the transcript for this episode, you can go to ttew.org. You can find other great resources, articles, blogs, and videos that may bless you in your Christian walk, as well as links to follow me on social media. If you wish to contact me, you can email me at thoroughlyequipped316 at gmail.com. Again, the website address is ttew.org. Thoroughly Equipped is part of Striving for Eternity's Christian podcast community. Striving for Eternity is a Christ-centered ministry focused on equipping people for eternity by assisting Christians to have an eternal perspective on life. They strive to bring evangelism, discipleship, apologetics, and Christian living together for the purpose of eternal preparation by exalting God, edifying and equipping the saints, and evangelizing the lost. They provide speakers, online articles, online courses, books, podcasts, and other theological resources, all centered on God's Word. To find out more, go to strivingforeternity.org. And to listen to other podcasts, go to podcast.strivingforeternity.org. I pray that their resources bless you as they have blessed me, as we live our lives day by day, praising and glorifying God.